Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water, to support women as leaders in the conservation movement, to ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is Lindsay Long, one of our wonderful ambassadors in Wisconsin. Hey, Lindsay. Hi, Ashley. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited about our conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, Our conversation today is going to be with our guest, Bailey Peterson. Hey, Bailey. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm super excited to talk to you. I think, so we've got, you folks are both in the Midwest, and I'm in Tennessee. Am I right? Yeah, right. I am calling from Northeast Minnesota. Northeast Minnesota. And Lindsay, I think you're kind of central Wisconsin, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of that central western Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Gotcha. <clears throat> well, Bailey, we like to lead off a lot of these episodes by asking our guests what they have in their freezers. <laughs> okay. Um, well, if you would have asked me a week ago, I would have had uh, about a dozen vials of Woodcock Splash. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Woodcock what? It's, well, we call it splash. It's excrement, I suppose, or feces from Woodcock from a study that we were helping with last spring. So that was the obscure item in my freezer up until we handed those in um, for the season. But otherwise, just normal stuff. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of wild game for us. Uh, we've been trying to you know, pare it down a bit so we have some room for the upcoming season that should be starting, you know, pretty soon for us. And so I think we've got maybe some venison roast left. We do have a lot of fish. My husband loves to fish. Um, And we've got a little bit of turkey left. We actually just butchered a few of our domestic turkeys that we were raising up this summer. And then I do still have a sage grouse in the freezer from last year that I just have not decided what to do with yet. Oh, we have a a snow goose, or excuse me, a speckled belly goose. Same problem. <laughs> yes, we plucked it whole. Stuff. It's sitting there. It's beautiful. And every time I open the freezer, I'm like, man, we need to figure out what to do with that. Exactly. Very cool. Well, Lindsay, do you have anything noteworthy in your freezer? Compared to those two things, I do not have a speckled goose goose or a sage grouse issue, nor do I have any, um, any splash, splash, which I, it kind of feels kind of strange that I don't actually, to be honest. Um, but, uh, I just got right now I've got some venison and I think I still have, um, yeah, I still pretty much I'm down to venison. Oh, but I do have wild rice on my shelf now. Mm. I got out last week. So that to me is kind of counts as something for the freezer yeah that's so cool i've never i grew up in minnesota and i love wild rice but i've never been able to harvest it is that something that you make a habit of yeah i do it i do it annually um we have in wisconsin it's you have to be a resident of wisconsin Mm -hmm. um but minnesota lets you come as a non-resident and harvest uh but yeah i try i have a few people that i make sure that um i stay on good terms with, so that I always have a racing partner because it, it's kind of you either kind of love it or you kind of don't like it very much it can be um buggy so there can be worms and f- spiders so it's not everybody's cup of tea but the people who love it really love it and of course I love to eat it and share it with other people so that's 
that's my favorite one of my favorite things to eat okay this we need to get back to bailey but (laughs) this show is a show of tangents so real quick I am interested in the harvest process. Like after, I think I kind of know how it works, but I just harvested a bunch of amaranth out of my garden that I planted this year for the first time. And so I'm sitting in my office in like, I'm surrounded by these giant plants on a sheet that are drying. And then I guess I'm going to shake them out and get the seeds out. But Lindsay, what does it look like to harvest wild rice? Um, You're normally in a canoe and you have someone who's kind of you can do it as one person, but it's a lot easier with two. And you have a person who kind of pulls through the plants, so pushes the canoe through it. And you have another person sitting in front with knockers, which are these wooden sticks that have certain specifications about how long they should be. And you kind of bend over the top of the rice and you give it like a gentle, like a caress or like a little knock. And a little it, love. Yeah, a little bit of love. And if the seeds are, or if the grain's ready, it falls into your canoe. And then you, some of it falls out too. So it, it's an annual. So that repopulates the seed bed. Hmm. I like and it. Gives, and has, um, yeah, it gives food on the ground or in the water for wildlife as well. So it's, it's a really cool process. Bailey, have you ever harvested wild rice? I have. Yep. Yeah. I used to, like Lindsay, I used to do it annually, um, more so when I lived in North Central Minnesota. Um, a little bit less since I moved to the Northeast, but my husband is one of the folks that Lindsay was mentioning uh, does not like the rice. <laughs> so I lost my racing partner. Um, and so we do it only occasionally now. We it, it, It's harder and harder to find processors um, mm-hmm. for the wild rice. So it is, it's definitely a, we've tried to, to process it ourselves. It's a quite a, quite a long process. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, on that note, Bailey, we know a little bit about you. You got the splash. We got that you don't have an enthusiastic racing partner. <laughs> but can can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Sure. Yeah. Uh, professionally, I'm the assistant area wildlife manager for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources over here in far northeastern Minnesota. Um, for that. Mainly, I work on forest habitat projects, working closely with our state foresters as well as um, other agencies like our county um, county lands foresters and the Forest Service as well. Um, those are some bigger landowners over here as well. And then uh, we work very closely with a few key partner organizations like the Rough Grouse Society and the Nature Conservancy to help fund um, some of the habitat projects that we do on the ground over here. Uh, and this time of year, I'm spending a lot of time um, sort of maintaining or sprucing up a lot of our facilities, like our wildlife management areas and our hunter walking trails, just in prep for the upcoming hunting season. And actually, I mean, we have some hunting seasons underway now already, but uh, yeah, that's about my professional life. And then personally, I'm like pretty much all things birds and bird dogs. Uh, hunting and any research work that I can weasel my way into to help with um, on my own time as well. Very cool. So Lindsay, I told Lindsay, I think I told you that I'm heading up to Northern Minnesota for a grouse hunt this October. Um, And she was like, you need to talk to Bailey. (laughs) (laughs) So that was kind of the impetus for this episode. And Bailey, I am going to unabashedly try to mine this conversation for all the hot tips (laughs) for 
where I should be and what I should be doing because this is going to be my first... I've been grouse hunting before here in Tennessee, but uh, populations are not what they used to be, to put it mildly, and we never saw a bird. Um, so, so this year, heading up north, is I'm hoping that we're going to have some, some luck. Oh, yeah, I should think so. <laughs> well, that's encouraging. <laughs> if you've heard that much about me and you think that we're going to connect with the bird, that's good to hear then. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you became so passionate about birds, kind of how you got started with them? Yeah, um, I went to college for wildlife management. Um, I think I knew I wanted to work with birds versus like, I mean, I'm a, my, my career currently is I'm a catch all wildlife, like habitat manager. It's not any one thing in, in particular, luckily over here, we're managing a lot of our habitat for moose, um, which, uh, woodcock and rough grouse habitat management falls really well in line with but anyway um uh i was previously working in north central minnesota for what's called the shallow lakes program within the minnesota department of natural resources and so i was working on um, mainly on wild rice lakes um, waterfowl lakes and then helping to restore some of our prairie pothole lakes in western minnesota so a lot of work with waterfowl, and that's kind of where I started hunting. I just like knew a lot about ducks, or I'd seen a lot of really quality um, waterfowl lakes, and thought maybe I should be doing this. And so I, I always had an interest in you know hunting for my own food, um, and it just looked like a, just kind of looked like something I, I was interested in trying. And so I uh, got a dog that was a golden retriever, and. We did that for a few years, but then I just kind of felt like there's something more that I could be doing with him. The dog just loved hunting. So we took to the uplands and gave it a try, and it was really fun. Um, and then, yeah, it's really kind of spiraled out of control from there with the dogs. <laughs> and uh, um, just wanting to be in the covers more and learning more and more about each of our birds, but really primarily rough grouse and woodcock now. So what kind of dogs do you have now? Um, now I've got a small Montlander, which is a versatile hunting breed, and then uh, two uh, Llewellyn strain English setters, which, oh, I mean, they're just, they're very versatile dogs, uh, but they, you know, they'd be considered your more traditional pointing breeds. Okay, so you cut out a second ago, but you said a Munsterlander? Yep, a small Munsterlander. He's uh, seven and a half. Wow, how did you, Lindsay, feel free to jump in anytime. I'm just like dominating this conversation because I'm already super interested. But I want to hear about the Munsterlander. Also, a friend of ours here has a Llewellyn setter. It's the first time I ever met one of those dogs. And that is going to be my next dog. (laughs) Because, wow, adorable, sweet, athletic, all all the things. Um, But please, Munsterlander, tell us more about that. Oh, sure. So I, um... Like I said, I was pretty big into um, waterfall hunting, and so I wanted to continue doing that, but venture into the upland space more. And so that just like, uh, I don't know if like back even like seven and a half years ago, it seems funny to say, but like Facebook's like search group searches weren't really a thing. Like obviously, that's what a ton of people do now. But I just like did some googling about like what kind of dog breeds 
um, would be good for that. And I um, knew uh, at a former, like, co-worker who had worked um, for Minnesota Waterfowl, and he had a large Munsterlander, and I met that dog, and it was really beautiful, um, but it was really, like, pretty hyper and crazy and so and big. So then I was just like, well, that was a beautiful dog as soon as I remembered what the name of it was. <laughs> and then um, I found out that there was a small variety, which is actually, not, like, now I know not at all related to the small Munsterlander. is not at all related to the large Munsterlander, but huh. they do look similar. They're just um, brown and white versus the black and white largest. But, um, yeah, so that I don't know. That's sort of how we stumbled into them. One I keep going back and forth on whether or not you can have too many dogs or have too much, not maybe, wait, let me remind that, not too many dogs, but too much um, interaction with your dogs, like out in the field, <laughs> like you were saying, it's all about the dogs. And I'm totally 100% into that. And um, so it, it's interesting to hear that how you picked, like, especially your first one, it's kind of the same thing. I think I fell into short hairs and it's like, I'm still into short hairs. <laughs> My first one wasn't a hunting dog. And so it's, but it's interesting to hear that perspective of how you move forward with those. Yeah. And we sort of had a variety pack for a while when we had the golden cause it was, yeah, the a retriever, a versatile, and then the setter. But um, now our setters love to swim. <laughs> just as much as the golden and they jump off the dock and everything and so they're little water bugs and i mean you can have i think as long as you take them with you and expose them to a lot of things they all of them can be whatever you want them to be but yeah i don't know i think for now i might be done like trying new breeds i, I really do like these llewellyn setters good relationship with our breeder and um, they just seem to work for, for me and for us, what we're doing right now. That's interesting. We have a, a Springer Spaniel, which I can identify with what you said about the size. We wanted to go with a Spaniel. We wanted something that was, could do waterfowl in Upland. And we didn't want a lab because we didn't want to break our backs hauling him into the boat <laughs> from the water. So, um, our dog is he's well under 40 pounds. He's easy to throw around, which is nice. Um, you have what you call a versatile dog, the Munsterlander. So to my mind, that means they can hunt, they can retrieve and also locate birds. Is that fair? Yes. Yep. Okay. They, and then the water work and more traditionally with fur and maybe blood tracking as well. Okay. Interesting. And then the Llewellyn setters obviously are, are pointers that are strictly locating dogs. Yeah, I, I, more Llewellyns that I've seen have a strong retrieve and, and like the water as well. Very cool. All right. Well, now that we have that little snippet, little vignette on your dogs, um, actually, before we move on, I was looking at your Instagram uh, account but, but when I was getting ready for this episode and I saw a post on there with three dogs in the forefront and some kind of wooden contraption in the background do you ski jor or sled with your dogs oh yeah so last winter um yes 
So I have a coworker that has a team of sled dogs, and um, whenever he's like away, or sometimes he'll just like send me a text and ask if I want to go for a ride. And I love running his dogs on our trails up here um, in the winter. And so, but I don't have, I I'm not quite to the level where I have enough dogs to run like a traditional dog sled. So I have um, what's called a kick sled, and so it's um, it's like skis. Uh, I mean, they kind of look like cross-country skis on the bottom, and then it's just a very lightweight. um, It's essentially like a chair mounted on them, and then all the rigging and harnesses and everything like a dog sled would be, just much lighter weight. So when I saw that, I thought, that's really cool. I wonder how that works. And I thought about with my dog. I mean, he's a a spaniel. He works in cover, right? Like, that's his job. And I thought if I ever strapped something like that to him, it would be two seconds and it would be sideways flat on the ground. How do you navigate that with your dogs? Oh, yeah. So um, the last couple of years, we've had very deep, fluffy snow. And so I I do have one, the, the older setter, I can't harness him or hook him up to the sled very well because he will. He'll... He'll either stop on point in the middle of the trail and then we'll all glide or he'll run in, um, off the trail into the snow. But his like he's a lot bigger than or I should say taller than the other one. So he can navigate the snow a little bit better. But um, the other two, like we live in the middle of the woods, so I've never really um, spent a lot of time teaching my dogs to walk real nicely on a leash. They have they have good heel command, mm-hmm. but they they've always pulled on the leash and it's sort of for me it was like a losing battle so I just um embraced that and <laughs> never so now they just pull unless I give them a woe command which comes in handy when the one in front uh stops on point on you know on like a <laughs> like a um grouse kill in the trail from like an owl or something and uh anyway uh they the snow has just been too deep to, to run in. And so they get used to running on the packed trails. And we have um, a lot of snowmobilers up here that run on some um, old logging roads and things like that, that I take advantage of. They're packing down the snow to, to run on those in the winter. It's really fun. That sounds fun. Lindsay, is that something in your future or maybe something you already do? I already do it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I was going to ask, so Bailey, so with my dogs, I have one, I have, he knows like what harness goes with what things. So like we have a running harness. So when that's on him, he's like highly focused on our run. Like nothing like takes him off his focus on staying on, (laughs) staying on task and running. And then he has like the ski during harness and it's kind of similar. He knows he's supposed to pull something. And then his, like his hunting harness, it's like, oh my gosh, I get to find birds now. Do you, do you see them? pick up on things like that too I don't know maybe it's just my other dog isn't nearly like that but the one he is just like so hyper focused on whatever task his harness is meant for (laughs) I think so I I think so the the only like I couldn't I don't think I could take him out to a hard packed lake and expect that they're gonna run like I don't know like a straight line or something (laughs) so that could be a little more difficult but uh, around here with the trails are, are bordered you know with trees on both ends and it's a pretty obvious straight path for, for the most part so you can keep them in the rails like bowling yeah keep them in the rails that's exactly <laughs> it 
That's awesome. This is, this is going to be on my bucket list now. Okay. Let's take a quick break to hear from one of our partners. For 125 years, Rio has made shot shells for hunting, sport, and defense using their own premium components. Top shooters like three-gunner Rihanna Kadic, champion clay shooter Tina Jewell, and outdoorswoman Taylor Garcia trust Rio to give them the edge on the range and in the field. A full line of target loads like Star Team Evo, hunting cartridges like the popular Texas game load, plus an array of buck and slugs. Now Rio is proud to introduce their pro-eco biodegradable wad to help keep plastics out of the environment. Visit rioammo.com for a complete line of 12 and sub-gauge products for your favorite game. That's R-I-O-A-M-M-O.com. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. And we're back. So before the break, we were talking about winter adventures with hunting dogs that don't necessarily involve hunting. Um, Bailey, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, woodcock banding? And I mean, I want to hear all about it. How did you get started? What's your role? How are the dogs involved? Everything. Sure. Yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, it, as, if wood, as if hunting or upland hunting wasn't an obsession enough like woodcock banding really gets its grips in you um and i don't know i think it's just super fulfilling and it's rewarding work um for both me as like a bird like fanatic but also like as a dog trainer because it's really like to me it's like the pinnacle of um like i've reached the pinnacle of training um and steadiness work when my when it all comes together on a on a woodcock um you know sitting on the in the cover with a with a brood of fresh hatchlings like everything falls into place and and it's a pretty high stress activity so um when the dog does what it should which if if the dog isn't doing what it should, we don't have any business being out there. So we keep our dog standards. We, as in the Woodcock Banding Program, keep our dog standards super high. Um, and we are continuously working to improve. And, and part of that means, you know, pulling your dog out of the woods if, if it's not um, performing the standard. And so keeping up to those standards and exceeding them is just, it's super rewarding work. So the Minnesota Woodcock Banding Program um, has been around since like the 90s, um, maybe the mid 90s, and it was modeled after the uh, Michigan program, which is a longer standing and much bigger program. Um, we've been working to grow our program over here. Uh, it's just tough, um, like I said, because our dog standards are so high, um, and it's a hard time of year to get folks, um, you know, kind of committed to spending a lot 
time in the woods looking for birds. Um, but we do. We, we've been growing every year um, for the last decade or so. And uh, so we have an annual training that we hold over at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp over in Reamer, Minnesota. And uh, that's for new banders or um, new hopeful banders and apprentices to come. Uh, it's a like one and a half day classroom um, training. And then we do um, dog testing for new banders if they have dogs um, to test out. And then up usually a day or two in the woods with a mentor to try to get your hands on a actually on a brood of woodcock um or the mentors also take out um the apprentices whenever possible um throughout the season as well i have so many questions Lindsay, <laughs> feel free to jump in if something strikes you as well um, well, similar to you, I'm just kind of in awe of this program, and it's one of the um, things that triggered my, like, um, fall, falling Bailey and just being, like, I, yeah, I feel like that program is just so amazing, and it's always so neat to see the updates that you provide on it, and just that, yeah, the pinnacle of those dogs. So I, I'm, I've got lots of stuff to you, but I'll let Ashley go ahead. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I did not realize this was a program that took volunteers, so pick me. Number one. Number two, I'm just kidding. My dog's not ready for this, but someday. Um, I, I know that at least in California, they allow volunteers to train and become um, basically citizen science dove banders um, so they can trap and ban doves. And it sounds like this is kind of similar that just members of the general public that maybe they have to have a dog um, can get certified and start to ban woodcock on their own. Or, I mean, yeah. you know, in conjunction yep. with the program? That's right. Yep. So we have a ban- a, a volunteer banding program. Michigan has a volunteer banding program. And then out east, they do a little bit. But that's um, more for research work. And it's a little more highly, um, like, supervised. <clears throat> but, yeah, essentially, there we have a federal master permit holder. So... All migratory birds are protected um, under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And so um, for handling them and banding them, that all needs to be permitted federally. And we have um, a volunteer who has the experience and skills and knowledge to oversee the program. And he, um, you know, relies on a group of us um, more senior banders to help run the training program um, and mentor the apprentices and things like that. But essentially, he's the one organizing all the subcommittees, um, and that's us, the volunteer banders, who fall under him. And that's that's okay once you pass the program to to be an independent bander. Wow. <clears throat> so the dogs get tested when you get trained um, at our um, training workshop, but then every subsequent dog will need to take the same test as well. So I started with the Munsterlander and I have since tested um, one setter and I'll have another one who's ready to test um, this next spring. What is the, what is the test? Well, um, we have a whole like, handbook now that has um essentially like a checklist that has to get checked off before um 
both a bander and the dog and dogs can can enter the woods um and so the the there's a two kind of two parts um when you're first taking the program or you're an apprentice bander um and your dog uh the first test is uh in the field and it's um trying to mimic like essentially the way that a hen woodcock would act or any I, sh I shouldn't just it, any bird would act um, when defending its um, nest or young. And so, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other things out in the woods during the springtime too. So it's really important that the dogs are under control at all times, but just to mimic a woodcock um, either doing its flutter flight, which is the, um, it's a short flight that she'll do. And then she'll usually <clears throat> excuse me, bounce around a little bit and pretend like she's injured or she'll like do the broken wing display that you see um, like killdeer or other shorebirds doing. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to attract the predator or in this case our dogs away from um, the young or the nest um, to try to lure them away. So it's really um, quite, it's, it's a lot of pressure for the dogs. Um, and so they need to hold steady through all of that. Wait, um, so do you get like a, a demo bird that will do that? Or how do you? We use a pigeon. Okay. We, we put a harness on it and we tie it on just a short string. And so it mimics it, it mimics it very well. And so that's just essentially the test to get past um, the training field so that you can enter the woods with a mentor, um, just to make sure your dog's under control and can handle that kind of pressure essentially so the dog just has to stay steady during that time and not go after the bird right mm -hmm. gotcha Oof, yep. yeah that'd be tough for our dog that's one of commands and bailey one of the reasons this um this whole program is important right is because these are migratory birds this helps kind of given these bands help to be utilized for estimating populations Right. Yep. Yep. So, um, bird banding uh, or banding of migratory birds has been around since the late 1800s. Um, and so, you know, essentially when it, populations were declining, um, they wanted a way to collect data about like migration, um, or age and sex age and sex distribution or survival of of game birds and so that's sort of the information we can get from these bands and okay so that was that was the first test just to be able to stand there in front of a bird freaking out and not freak out yourself what's what's the second part <laughs> yeah exactly the second part is um entering the woods with your dog and having it find a, a brood of woodcock um essentially what happens is they should point the hen, um, if all if all goes as it should, they should point the hen, at which case the handler or the bander would pick the dog up um, and move it back to a safe location and, and leash it on a short leash to a tree. Um, you wouldn't believe the number of times that a hen will fly like right at the dog um, when she flushes off of her um, away from her young. We don't disturb hens that are still on eggs. So we have, that's another part of the training is to try to identify 
um they're, they're still incubating um because we don't want to disturb them or necessarily bring in like scent into that area for predators um mm. so we try to only enter the woods once we know that um the birds when when birds start hatching and we have a pretty good idea based on when they arrive in um you know our different covers in the spring as to when they should be hatching and i mean it's a short window for banding it's only about two weeks um between when a chick hatches till when it's fully flighted and you wouldn't be able to catch them so i've spent a, a good amount of time in the woods and other places catching animals for work and i know there's like a it's a specific thrill that you get doing that um and i can't imagine how it works like i know how to catch a fawn but little baby woodcock chicks are so tiny like how do you corral them how do you wrangle them the the most stressful part of the whole thing is um identifying them on the ground their their camouflage is uh really unreal and so it's it's a lot of pressure the dog work like i've been describing um but it's it's also all on you to to watch where you're stepping uh and not necessarily have other people in the field i've had um times when the the wind is weird and he comes up on a uh, one of my dog comes up on a brood you know maybe a weird way and he hits point and woodcock are known for holding tight and uh these chicks don't necessarily have a lot of smell um and when they're newly hatched there really won't be that much smell around the area either because when a hen is incubating she goes elsewhere to go to the bathroom so as to not um put a lot of scent in the area and so they're sometimes when they first hatch there isn't a lot of scent in the area and so anyway i've, I've had it before where the dog is essentially like standing um over the chicks like they're uh, like around his feet and so that takes like i said a really steady dog and he can't see them and he really can't smell them either um and so as long as they hold uh, nice and steady it's it's really hard to see them but they don't move a lot um it, within the first few days as soon as that hen flushes um which is usually like that's my job is uh, i just need to be very careful when i walk in to pick up the dog to watch where i'm stepping the brood could really be anywhere um and pick up the dog and move him back and uh once the hen flushes the chicks just do not move and they, they aren't moving uh, when she's um you know hiding or holding steady on the ground either but once they're like seven or eight days old they'll they'll pop up and start running um especially once you pick the first one up it's they start squeaking and then it like all hell breaks loose and they run everywhere so it's really best to so i'll walk around with flagging tape and i'll drop a little like half inch piece of it like next to each chick before i pick up the first one oh, pro and they, they have four four would be the maximum that they have um and so it's not like a ton like not as many as grouse but it's still it's really um it can be like what what's only a minute could feel like an hour sometimes when you're searching um and we have like weather restrictions we won't go out if it's too cold and things like that just to protect the the chicks who can't thermoregulate but you still want to get in and i always my goal is to get in and get out of there as fast as possible 
So I try to savor the moment just through like taking photos, but um, I really do the whole process as quickly as I can. Yeah, I I can. I've was always had the same philosophy whenever we were catching an animal because their life is in your hands, even if they're mm-hmm. not literally in your hands. That's super interesting. How do you, I'm assuming that you put metal bands on them, like leg bands, but they're so tiny. So how does that work as they get bigger? Yeah, so their legs are, I mean, the band, when I, I band a lot of Canada geese with work every year and the little yellow fuzzy chicks, um, like the bands will usually come right off their legs. But um, once they turn like gray, uh, then usually the band, or I'm sorry, they're gray, they're gray when they're, yeah, they're little gray babies and like they don't have like an ankle big enough and the band will slip right off. But with the woodcock, their feet are big enough when they're born that the band does not slip off. And their legs don't grow that big. So an adult-sized band is the same as a chick-sized band. Yeah, those shorebird feet. Or, well, I mean, woodcock aren't shorebird yeah. feet. Those, <laughs> same kind of thing, right? They're just yeah. like monsters. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, wow. I could, I could go down this woodcock trail for the rest of the episode, but we also need to talk about grouse. So, Lindsay, before we pivot, is there anything that you wanted to touch on? No, I just found it super interesting. Thank you for all that information. Yeah, and Bailey, just I'm assuming this is I'm, this is all happening in the spring, but what kind of generally two week period is this happening during? Um, it's pretty much um, it, it and it depends on snowmelt, um, but Minnesota is a you know kind of a big state longitudinally, and so it can start weeks earlier down like north of the metro area in Minnesota. And uh, up by me, it could be a month later before our first chicks hatch. So if you're willing to travel, your season could be like a month and a half or, or more long. But usually May is kind of the prime month. Um, with our workshop, we hold like usually like the second weekend of May each year. And uh, like last year, it was almost too late. And this year, it was um, like a day too early. It wasn't until the afternoon of the last day of the workshop that um, our first apprentices found their brood. So it really depends. Wow. That's interesting. That's a lot more variation than I would have anticipated. Yeah. It's all, like I said, it's all about the snow. (laughs) All about the snow. All things in Minnesota, all about the snow. (laughs) Uh, One other question that I have, I know you mentioned the pigeon for testing, but how do you, you personally go about readying a dog for that kind of a situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think any steadiness training, um, I honestly, I started inside with my dogs and I'll like, just be, uh, I'll start it kind of intentionally, uh, with like woe training and then maybe I'll set like an item of, uh, like food down on the ground and, um, that'll kind of transition to me like tossing a piece of food on the ground and then I have to shout like a woe command and then like being a little more casual about it like where maybe they don't like it seems accidental and and you know just kind of testing them I I do it a lot like I said inside with food um and that's more like I always in a panic that they're going to eat something that they're not supposed to so it's like a training exercise but it has worked really well for me to woe train my dogs doing it that way and then I'll transition to maybe tossing bumpers outside um sight pointing a pigeon um on a string 
uh, to uh, pointing like a launcher pigeon. I, I really like when a dog um, is stopped to flush trained or stops to flush naturally. Um, and that's like them just being pretty honest on their birds. So I like that when they do that. And then, um, and then mimicking that same pigeon test, um, before I hit the woods in the spring. Um, and then I'll, you know, head out when I think the birds are here, um, and start, you know, just trying to figure out when they've arrived and I'll work, um, the dogs on them for just a few days. They only lay four eggs, so after four days of um, being back, they could potentially already be sitting on a full clutch of eggs, and I don't want to disturb them then. So my spring training is pretty short, but um, but it is important for me to to do that just because I want to make sure that they're um, tuned up before I hit the woods. Very cool. How many pigeons have you lost in this endeavor? Not none. Way to go, man. I'm impressed. You can see that I have relatively low standards for. <laughs> yeah. Well, we lose probably one a year at the, at the workshop and that's, that's fine. And, and it's not like you do not have to come to the workshop with a perfectly like absolutely meticulously trained, ready to go dog. It like we've lost a lot of interest in our program that way it we we stress the importance of it for bird welfare and it will never not be a critical component but that doesn't mean that we aren't willing to like help you get to that point so that's just something I wanted to to stress yeah well it sounds like a really neat opportunity to get some hunting quote-unquote hunting in outside of a regular season and keep your dog tuned up anyway yeah. Oh, and I should mention, we're trying to help out our buddies in Wisconsin because they don't have a program currently. Um, and since it is a federal, um, so nationwide, like permit, we may be looking to add or help Wisconsin with a program. So we've had um, people come from Wisconsin the last several years, hoping that that a program will get um, started. And, and we're hoping to help help them do that as well. Yeah, I, I don't think it's been done in Wisconsin since we had some research projects, so it's been a while. Yep, it would be great. It would be great to have something, though. Mm-hmm. So, Bailey, I don't know if you are privy to all of the data that's collected, but do you get information on where um, Woodcock Bandit in Minnesota are recovered? Yeah, we can usually run a report on that each year and our um band return rate is pretty low it's it's comparable with the nationwide average um for banded migratory birds but it's it's quite a bit lower than um waterfowl and it's lower than michigan as well but they banned so many more birds than us but it's really interesting um are <clears throat> in the early years of our program we were doing a lot of assistance with research work um that was occurring on national wildlife refuges which are open to hunting for for some species and woodcock is one of them um but the return rate so the number of birds harvested number of banded birds harvested is so low on the in those areas it's like three percent whereas in the county 
in Minnesota where we have our workshop, um, where we mainly are banding on state, federal, and county lands in a very popular destination, grouse and woodcock hunting location. Our, our band return rate is almost 11%, so it's really um, quite a bit higher um, on the public lands where you know people are more traditionally hunting. Sure, that makes sense. Lindsay, were you going to say something? Nope. Oh, okay. So you unmuted, and I wanted to give you, I, I wanted to give you a chance. Okay, we. I'm, just, I'm absorbing it all. It's like it's a all lot. soaking in. Yeah, you're gonna have to get. You're gonna have to start doing this with your dog in Wisconsin soon, hopefully, huh? Yeah. Um, I will need help with the the woe to flush. He's he's pretty good, but he definitely he and I both. This is my first time I've ever had a dog that I've actually trained daily. So he and I have learned a lot together. Um. And I got him when he was nine months old and I've just, oh, I'm really lucky that he had some very strong um, personal desires and he works well with me and he, he forgives me my mistakes. <laughs> That's awesome. I think if you have a cooperative dog, um, then it's really just a exercise of repetition. You know, it's, it's totally doable. There's hope, Lindsay. There's hope. <laughs> oh, there's hope for us yet. For yeah, for both of us. Um, okay, so as I mentioned earlier, Bailey, I'm about to head up north grouse hunting. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you please tell me what I should be? <laughs> what, what I should be looking for? I mean, we have. A, he's a good dog. He's he doesn't have experience with grouse, but um, anything else that we've put him on, he you know, he does well. So I think we can rely on him to some extent. Um, but I don't, I mean, where do I need to be? How does grouse hunting work? All, all we know thus far is go to the cover, go to the thick stuff. And we're going to have our, by that point, a 16 month old, almost 17 month old daughter with us. I'm going to be carrying her on my back. So the thick stuff is not going to be great <laughs> for us logistically. Yeah, that's, that does sound, um, like it presents some multiple challenges. That's that's okay though. I mean, we have we're ble- we're blessed in the Great Lakes states. We still have a timber market. We have an abundance of um, like aspen cover types, and we have you know okay bird numbers. Our, our habitat is in okay shape. I'll say okay because I'm <laughs> like cautiously optimistic, um, but. It sounds like you might be more interested in hunting um, like trails versus getting real into the thick stuff. And that's totally um, doable. So we have um, quite a lot of hunter walking trails in Minnesota. We also have designated what's called rough grouse management areas. And those are both um, pretty easy to find on our Minnesota DNR website. Um, the hunter walking trails show up on Onyx as well. You just have to be kind of zoomed into a specific area that, you know, you want to go though. Um, wait, okay. Hold up. Hunter walking trails. Is this like on private property that is that there's like an easement or how does that work? They are, they are not there for the most part. They're on public property. Um, and I should take a step back and just like in the forested part of the state, you're, it's largely going to be, um, there'll be like, there'll be areas that are obviously like privately owned. Um, but once you get deeper into the woods and further away from the roads, like 
it's going to be a lot of public land. The county sure. I live in is um, is 74% publicly like public land, and wow. the county to the north of me is almost 90% public land. So it's it's um, more about finding prime cover than it is about finding like public lands to hunt. Um, it's gotcha. very rare that I'm going to go to a cover that I'm looking to hunt that day, and there'll be another hunter there. Like hunting pressure in some parts of the northern part of the state or some parts of the forested part of the state is, is quite low for bird hunting once you get into the deer season it's a totally different story um but for grouse hunting it's there's there's a lot of us but there's a lot of room to roam too so the rough grouse management areas that i was mentioning those are going to be managed specifically with a suite of habitat considerations in mind um that's going to be managed more in smaller blocks of um, timber, whereas uh, a lot of the forested part of the state is just going to be, um, <laughs> I don't know how to say it, like it's not, the timber isn't harvested with rough grouse in mind almost ever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the timber is being harvested because there is a demand for it and it is reaching a mature age. Um, which is great for grouse hunters. Um, and so not every timber cut is necessarily created equal. You have to kind of become like a forester to, <laughs> to learn. A timber cut connoisseur. Yeah, but you, but you don't. You just need to know a few tips or tricks or things to look for. Um, and so the reason I mentioned the rough grouse management areas is because they are all going to be kind of that ideal type cover and a good place to start but if you if you start trying to e-scout um it doesn't take a very long time to be able to identify young aspen um and sometimes you show up somewhere and you thought it looked like it might be young aspen and it's like a young oak stand that's regenerating that does happen occasionally but um that's okay. There's a lot of places to look in in Minnesota or in the Great Lakes states where you, where you can um, be reasonably sure that there's going to be some birds in there. You get in there and it's dog hair thick instead of like I don't know arm thickness. Then you might be in a woodcut cover instead of a grouse cover, and that's for me that's fine too. <laughs> so, Interesting. Okay, that's a good that's a good metric. Easy to remember. Yeah, I mean it becomes. Um, grouse cover really after it's been prime woodcock cover and the sweet spot for me is really when it's both um, when it's getting a little bit too old for woodcock cover uh, but the grouse are are using it that's I think that's really the ideal time to to hunt those areas Um, and then yeah keeping in keeping in mind like edge grouse I think all grouse are really considered edge species, but for rough grouse, it looks a lot different. It's not the edge of an egg field where it meets um, like roosting cover, like it might be for prairie birds, but it's the edge of a mature stand where it meets a young stand. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes a nicer place to walk sometimes in the mature stand because that it's not going to have quite the density of stems as it is in the younger um stand and then um let's see what else uh 
water is important. So swampy edges um, over here, we're, we have a lot of streams, so stream edges. All those are gonna be really brushy along the edges of them. Uh, so that's another type of edge, um, but they're also per, like tend to be the types of um, shrubs that produce a lot of food for grouse. And yeah, you, you can never go wrong really focusing on food when it comes to um, trying to identify where any sort of quarry might be. But in this sure. case, uh, for rough grouse, it's um, like fruiting shrubs or mast producing shrubs. Um, so, you know, choke cherries, high bush cranberries. Um, in the once it once we get a hard freeze or we have snow on the ground, hazel and birch they both pr produce a catkin, which is a super high carbohydrate um, concentrated bud that the grouse love. And then of course there's the aspen, which is the species everybody correlates with the rough grouse, and they produce um, the uh, uh, just a bud on the end of the branch that you'll see them all up in the trees, um, which we we just call it budding, but it's essentially just nipping the ends off of all the branches. <laughs> oh man, that's okay. Awesome. So many good tips. Thank you. I feel much more prepared than I did 10 minutes ago, which is kind of sad, but also good. Um, so when you actually, well, I guess you have I don't know. It's, I'm sure it's different when you're hunting with pointers, but when you're hunting with a flushing dog, how does that go? I mean, I feel like, is it often that you can't, you don't even get a shot? <laughs> with my golden retriever, I was like seven woodcock flushes to one in the bag. <laughs> and when I got the pointers, that's all on me, you yeah. know, after that with the flushing, with the flusher, I could always blame you know that it went that it was either too far it went a weird way or whatever but or it wasn't prepared but there's really no excuse if you have a good pointing dog <laughs> except that you missed oh I, of course the trees being in the way is is kind of the golden excuse but um for the flushers yeah i mean you're gonna want them to be a good flushing dog i think in the grouse woods is constantly pushing the birds back towards you and that's not going to work perfectly every time but when it does um, and you're hunting a trail, it, it makes for some really great open shots. Um, I think quite often, like one of us would be in the woods and the, then the flusher would just work in between us, um, which would give shot opportunities, hopefully to both people, the, both the one in the woods and the one on the trail. Um, and yeah, I, I think as long, I think range would probably be the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Lindsay, how is all of this squaring up with your experience? Oh, probably, um, I guess, yeah, I would give the same kind of, um, suggestion as Bailey is like, you utilize some of those trails with what you're carrying. We, when I've, um, I mean, I'm pretty new to this myself, but when I've taken people who are even newer than me out, sometimes it's nice because they don't feel as confined by the trees to get their gun up. And so I can have, Toby and myself like using those woods and being trying to flush birds back towards them, which helps a lot too. just kind of what she mentioned. So, um, yeah, it, cause it can feel, especially if you're, you're not new, but especially if I think for new hunters, I know when I was a new hunter going through dense cover was 
kind of intimidating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if anybody yeah. else has felt that experience, but for me, it was a little intimidating when I first started <laughs> grouse and woodcock hunting into some thick cover areas. And I, so I still take, sometimes I still take a beat to trust myself to recognize what I see flushing, even though I know what it is. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> part of me still takes a beat, especially when it, my heart stopped because it <laughs> came very close to where I was standing. <laughs> but um... you'll always have a heart attack. <laughs> Expect a heart attack. I, I, I feel like no matter how many times I expect the rough grouse, it's just <laughs> it's always scary. Um, I think working off of a trail, whether you stay on it or not, is is a smart move, um, yeah. just for orientation purposes. So, like, I always like to, you know, I I might work it for a little while and then come off of it and then hop back on it. But I like to I like to know that it's there. Um, if I have to get back to the car fast or it's getting dark on me or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just nice to have it there. And um, you don't have to hunt a designated hunter walking trail. You can look once you once you get um, sort of an eye for e-scouting on aerial photos um, you, and identify a timber harvest. It's nicer when you it's sometimes it's nicer when you have an aerial photo that's a little bit older um, because you'll still be able to see what's called skid trails. It's essentially where the wood was pulled um, out of the cover and then like brought back to a landing where it was all stacked up and loaded up on the trucks. And so those trails tend to stay um, quite a bit longer than the, as the rest of the cover grows up just because they were, they were used for so long. And um, you know, then they're not necessarily publicly advertised. So like the hunter walking trails, they, I mean, I, I I couldn't tell you that those don't get a decent amount of pressure from people, but they also, they do hold a lot of birds. So it's not like you can still be very successful by going to them. We have a lot of them and some of them might not even get hit in the season. So it's not like they, they aren't over pressured, but um, not, there are other trails that you can hunt. So if you drive by somewhere, you see some boulders blocking an old skid trail or, or a two track that's all brushed in like those are all really great places to walk cool excellent tip okay love that that. and i don't know about northern minnesota but i know here my dog tries to pull me through as much raspberry or blackberry (laughs) naturally i keep an eye on that too (laughs) yeah we've we've got our fair share of that here for sure and i try to keep our dog out of it i don't know i feel like he hunts harder and I don't mean like he has more heart and he's better than other dogs. I mean, like he, f- the physicality of this animal is astounding. And the way that he throws himself into anything could be res, could be blackberries. <laughs> I mean, we've tried, I- I'm toying with the idea of sewing myself a special vest for him because none of the you know lab or larger breed vests fit him, but he needs like a chest cover. I want something that has like Kevlar in it for barbed wire, a flap that goes up the neck, and then he needs complete armpit cover all the way down to cover his Ducos cars <laughs> because he'll come out of anywhere. And it's like, I don't, he'll just be bleeding blood everywhere. <laughs> you can't make him hunt less hard. So I don't know. We need some protection for this dog. I don't, yeah. think, I don't know if that's an issue with Llewellyn's. My feeling from the one that I know is that it's not, but I could be wrong. Um, I have one that runs very gracefully through the woods and the other that um, hits the cover a little bit harder. Yeah. And he's small, 
And so, like, I feel like he knows that he needs to throw himself into something because I've seen him, like, run full speed at some, like, at, like, some brush and it kind of just, like, bends and then pushes him back out of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Well, Bailey, you've been telling us about so many interesting things that we haven't actually been able to hear a lot about you and your hunting um, outside of the woodcock banding, but can you tell us about one of your favorite moments in the field? Um, that's tough. <laughs> I'm sure you have many to catalog through, but I guess, um, I'm, I'm heading out to Montana in, uh, let's see, two days. So I'm really excited about my annual, like start of the season prairie hunting trip. So I think I'll take a flashback to last season, um, on our Montana trip it was like this year quite warm and so we had um four dogs at the truck and so i wanted to take one and hunt this piece of cover that i hadn't that we hadn't hunted yet but it was too hot i i thought it was too hot to leave um all the other dogs out in the blazing sun without exactly knowing um how hot it was in the back of the truck and so that was like something that made me really nervous and so i um left my husband at the truck with the three dogs and I took one dog and ended up having this this really amazing hunt I'd been having like some bad shooting um earlier in the day and so this was I think this was going to be our last hunt of the trip and um right like I don't know we were probably 100 yards from the truck and my um Llewellyn Hatchet he pointed a covey of huns that got up um and they are kind of explosive when they rise so my husband was i think he was feeding the other dogs in the back of the truck and he heard them get up and he watched me drop one and it was just like kind of the icing on the cake as far as that whole trip went um and we had brought two puppies out last year and so that dog didn't get to hunt as much um as he maybe normally would and then we continued on um and ended up finding another brood of um or covey of uh sharp tails and then another big covey of huns and it was just a really like and he handled um everything like just picturesque so it was just a really special hunt with just me and that dog and I hunt alone a lot um and I hunt alone most of the time in the grouse woods but out west um we don't tend to as much I think just because there's so much cover Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just me and my husband, um, we go out with a big group of friends, but we tend to split up quite a bit and maybe once we'll hunt as a big group, but, it, um, otherwise it's just my husband and I, and we tend to be covering these massive areas of land. Um, but yeah, that was just really special just for me and the one dog to be just kind of have an awesome hunt together and, and that... I look it again this weekend. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm sure. And and that was a dog that you trained, right? Correct. Okay, so that that really had to have felt wonderful to know that, you know, you you prepped him, put him in this position and then it all went together like that. Yeah, it was great. That's awesome. All right. Well, I have kept you here as long as I could. <laughs> Uh, respectfully, but we're going to transition to hits and misses, which is our weekly closer. Um, so it's just kind of a round robin. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? Lindsay, would you like to start us off? Oh, geez. Well, I already talked about mine. I was aiming to get some wild rice and I got um, probably 
um, a good haul last Thursday. So I'm really excited. And I already got it back from the processor. So it was a hit. It's a 10 out of 10. That's a good hit. Uh, Bailey, what about you? Uh, I have been aiming to get all of my dogs ready for the season and to be like healthy and happy and ready to go. And it's been a bit of a struggle. Um, I had two dogs in the same week that ended up with these like massive oozing sores on their one one on the inside of their lip and one on the outside of their lip and I was in a panic about what it was and they ended up each having a different kind of seed um, in their lips that I was able to get out but only after like multiple trips to the vet and then like we had scheduled surgery and I didn't want to have surgery on them because I'm heading out on my first trip of the season and here we are like a few days to go and currently (laughs) everybody is healthy and happy and ready to go nice man i can our dog had a a grass on that went down it ended up between his ribs by the time they got it out it took two surgeries we didn't know what it was for a long time so those seeds they can be problematic yeah it's really scary it is super scary we've become much more uh religious about combing him after outings than i mean we never really thought about it before mm-hmm. um yeah well i would say my i had a hit this last weekend uh we took my daughter out dove hunting twice and it was the first time that we did any kind of uh, like shotgun hunting with her we had taken her to the range one time um and she did amazing Uh, My tips to other parents that want to bring little kids dove hunting, at least, is to have a lot of extra shotgun shells and a lot of containers for them to dump them in and out of, (laughs) because that activity alone kept her busy for at least a couple hours. So that was a big hit. But Bailey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And Lindsay, thank you for being the co-host and for introducing me to Bailey. This was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry, I tend to, like, if somebody doesn't stop me, I'll talk about woodcock, banging for woodcock all day. Hey, that's and what we'll you were here you, for. So. <laughs> Ooh, what did you say, Lindsay? I said, and we'll let you. Yeah, so exactly. It works out great. Yep, that was the job description. Well done. <laughs> thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Thank you.